0: And today's reading is a special reading. It is Chol Hamoet Sukkot. So this is the week of Sukkot. So we're reading out of Exodus chapter 33, 12 through 34, 26. So I'm going to open up with the blessing for the Torah reading this morning. i open up by saying, Ba Adonai Hamorah Bau Hadonai Hamorak leolam Vaid Bau Hata Adonai, Elohino Melaha Olam, Ashbah Banu, Mikol Hamin, Metalanu, Etuatu, Bau Hata Adonai, Noten Hatora Amen. Today we're going to be reading out of Exodus thirty four, verses one
1: through four. Hashem said to Moshe, Carve two tablets of stone like the first. And I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you shattered. Be ready by morning, and in in the morning come up to Har-Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one else shall come up with you, and no one else shall be seen anywhere on the mountain. Neither shall the flocks and the herds graze at the foot of this mountain. So Moshe carved two tablets of stone like the first, and early in the morning he went up on Har-Sinai, as Hashem had commanded him, Taking the two tablets of stone with him,
0: and we all say, "Amen." His name be praise. His name be praise. The but a half for after the reading, the go Baruchata, Donai, Loheno Melhaolam, Ashadatan Lanu, Torame, Haeolanata, Betohenu, Bauhata, Donai, Noten Hatoa, Amen. Vezot Hatoa Shil Moshe livnei Neben Israel, Al Piadonai Beyat Moshe. This is the Torah which plays Moses before the children of Israel on the mouth of Adonai in the hand of Moses. Amen. You may be seated. God's is faithful, isn't he? Sometimes? <laughs> okay, I'm in the right crowd. Just want to make sure. <laughs> His name be praised. All right, family. So we are we're coming now in the closing of Sukkot. And many of you are wondering, what are we doing here? Right? Why are we dwelling in tents? Why are we putting up with each other's nonsense? For a whole week. Do you know how difficult that is to put up with everybody's nonsense for a whole week? Not easy, I'll tell you right now. But there's a lesson here that the Father's trying to teach us in the festival of Sukkot. Why this uh, reading is chosen is because it has this several encrypted messages here that are concerning Sukkot. That's why we're not doing Vezot Habracha, which is the last portion of Deuteronomy. Why are we not doing it today? Abba wants us to wait a minute. Hold on. Forget about Vezot Habraha for right now. I, wanna, I want your attention in Sukkot. A very, very powerful message for us to understand here today. Exodus 34, 1 through 4 actually gives us, and it is a wealth of information concerning this parashah, just on those four verses. And what is the connection of Sukkot in Exodus 34, 1 and 4? So much that we don't see sometimes just on the surface of the word, right? So let's go there. Let's go to Exodus 34, 1. And we'll start now what it says, And the Lord said to Moshe, Hew for yourself two, two, two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the what? First tablets, he says, right? Which what? You broke, it says, correct? Am I reading that right? Okay, just want to make sure. So the question is in here that we want to ask ourselves. Now, this 25 questions to ask in these four verses. Now, obviously, I'm not going to cover 25 questions today. Don't worry. But I will cover one. One is Daino, it's sufficient. We'll cover the other 24 questions next year. Maybe we'll cover a couple more and we'll go on and so on and so forth. But there's 25 questions regarding these four verses. Let's start with the first one. First of all, what is the difference here? When Hashem tells Moses in here that he is to what? Heal for yourself two stone, tablets, carve out for yourself these things. What is the point of reference that God is speaking here? I want to take you first of all, if, if this is Exodus 34, right? If we go 10 chapters, to be exact, 10 chapters prior, we're going to notice that the reading is slightly a little bit different. Let's go together and uncover. Let's go to Exodus 24, 12. And what does Exodus twenty twelve 12 says? And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me to the mountain and remain there, he says. And what? I will give you the stone tablets, the law, and the commandments, which I have written to instruct them. What is the difference in here? I don't know if you can tell the difference. Let's go back to Exodus 34, 1. Heal for yourself two stone tablets. In Exodus 24, 12, God is the one who cuts the tablets. God is the one who writes the Torah. And God is the one that literally hands it straight to Moshe. All in a silver platter. Moshe doesn't have to do anything, essentially. Here in Exodus 34, we see that there is a change. He tells Moshe now, you cut the tablet stones out. What happened? Why is God, this is one of the questions that the rabbis ask, why is it that God is telling Moses to do it? Why is God not doing it? So let me ask you a question. I know it was only one question. I changed my mind. Two questions here. Right? There might be three, but let's stick with two for right now. Why is God telling Moses to do this now at this point in history? In other words, what happened between the Exodus 24 when Hashem gave the, the tablets to Moshe? And then Exodus 34. What has happened? What's changed? The golden calf. You know, that golden calf is still penetrating into our, uh, into our lives today. That golden calf is far, it's not far removed. It's still amongst us, family. The difference in here, first of all, I want to, I, we, we have to read this because it's pretty interesting the way actually this reads. And in Hebrew actually gives us a sense of what Hashem is really telling us, the direction that he's going, all that. okay? Look. in Hebrew it says, "Vayomer hashem el says." And God spoke to Moshe, it says, right? And then it says, He opens up by saying, Pesal lecha, take not take for yourself, but pesal literally means like a sculpture, like a shrine type of thing. So he's telling him to take from this sculpture, take out of that, so that you can make the tablets. Take it for yourself, he says. It says pesal lecha, shne luchot avanim. It says, take the two what avanim? Oh, I'm sorry, luchot, which is the tablets. That's what it represents, a tablet. It says two tablets. Take the shenayim. La avanim, it says. But look what it says. It says, Like the gichonin in Hebrew, like the very, very first original ones, he says. Gichonin, then it says, Vachatavti in Hebrew. And I will inscribe in it. Hataf is literally your engraving. But Moshe is carving out the tablets. God is writing it. It's now almost like a partnership here. Whereas before, the Hakadosh Baruch Hu did everything. You see? He says, uh, I'm sorry, where am I? Okay, va Khatafti. You know that word chatafti is conjugated first person. It's meaning, and I will write. Do you know that word khataf is to inscribe? But that word also comes from the word chatef in Hebrew, which literally means to be free. Think about this in a prophetic sense. When God's word is inscribed in us, the word for inscribe also carries the meaning of being free. When we allow the Word of God to be inscribed in us, we experience in Hebrew, freedom. See? So he says, I will inscribe, basically, I will, I will, it says, And I will put the words in the luchot in Hebrew, in the tablets. So, What's happening in here, family, in this this verse, is that God is revealing through the Hebrew here, which it says, says. It's from the word shever in Hebrew, which means you shattered. Moshe, Rabbi Moshe shattered the Torah. Now that the Torah is shever, it's completely broken, it's shattered, right? The text gives us the implication that God is saying to Moshe now, he's showing us the way back. In this very verse, the Father is showing Bnei Israel the way back. And we're going to see how that kind of plays out. How is it that he's revealing the way back? He's revealing the way back by telling Moses to take the two tablets himself, to carve it out himself. In other words, God is not doing it. Moshe has to do it. Look, I want to take us to this, and this is very, very powerful. In the Plain Gematria, let's take the whole thing in here. When it says, carve for yourself two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. If you take those whole words in the Tanakh, you get a beautiful number, and that number is 6,639. It took me a long time to add all those numbers, by the way. I hope you appreciate this. 6,639 gives us a verse in the Bible to connect us to the way back to Hashem, and that is Isaiah 61.3. What does Isaiah 61.3 say? Let's look at this. To grant those who mourn in Zion, it says, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness. You know, oak is very strong. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What does that mean? This, if, you, if you understand Isaiah 61, you know, I don't like just using one verse. I will encourage you to read the whole chapter. This is the particular one that the Gematheon is bringing us, but the whole chapter gives you the bigger picture. And what is that, te- what is that teaching us? Isaiah 61 is talking about the exaltation of the afflicted. In other words, the nation that was afflicted, that now is being what? Glorified. In other words, we went from a state of being rejected, in a state of being afflicted, in a state of shame, to a state of exaltation. That's what Isaiah 61 is all about, by the way. So there's a connection with Isaiah 61 since it's talking about Israel being exalted. And the message in here today, why it is this message in here, why is the, this reading takes place in here, is because Exodus 34.1 and Isaiah 61, actually there is a connection. How does Israel get to be exalted is the question before the nations. The answer is in Exodus 34.1. Let's go back card for yourself the two stone tablets. There's the answer. But you may be wondering, what does that mean? Let's go to the Chumash. It gives us a little bit of clarity so we can see the connection. In the Chumash it says, on the 29th of Av, at the end of Moses' second 40-day period on Mount Sinai, God agreed to give a second set of tablets to Israel. By the way, what was in the, first, in the second tablets? What did God inscribe on the second tablets? It says, as in the likeness as the first one. In other words, are you, are you hearing me? The new tablets contained the information that was in the old. The new tablets, by definition, there was actually nothing new in it. The only thing that was new is the tablets itself. But the inscription was identical. Kereshonim in Hebrew is literally, with the kaf, it's literally saying in the same likeness. Nothing different whatsoever. for thought on that? It says in here, God agreed to give the second set of tablets to Israel. This time, however, the stone tablets themselves would not be the handiwork of God. And we read that literally at the Pashat level, black and white. This is not a homily. This is not an esoteric concept. This is black and white. You can go open your Bible, and it's right there. A five-year-old can read it and understand it. That Moses is the one who's carving these out, not God. It's not the work of God anymore. Instead, Moses was commanded to carve out the stone blocks and bring them to the mountain. For God to inscribe the commandments on them. Now look what the Chumash says. This change was a reflection of the lower status of the nation at this point. Why the nation's status was lower? Well, what happened? The golden calf. Remember, between Exodus 24 and and Exodus 34, we have a golden calf in the middle. And that golden calf literally brought the nation from a high exaltation to literally shame. And now God in his mercy says, I do not want to see my nation in shame. So I'm going to make a way for my nation to come back. See? This change was a reflection, of course, of the lower status of the nation. The first time they were completely amenable to God's will. They had said, we will do and we will obey. You guys remember Exodus 24, 7, when Israel went before the mountain. They say, all that the Lord has said. We will do and we will obey. Meaning that they had transformed themselves into an instrument of God's will, essentially. Have you said to the Lord, All that you have said, I will do and I will obey? Is the question. Be careful with your words. Because when we make that declaration to Hashem, we are essentially saying to him that we surrender our will to his will. See? That's the reality. Don't get all cute. Oh, everything that the Lord said, we will do and obey. Mimicking things that we read in the Bible without any substance behind it. Understand what you're saying because it cost Israel a great deal. See? So it says, because they had reached an exalted spiritual state in which even their bodies were suffused with godliness, it says. Wow. This was a reflection in the physical tablets, which were fashioned by the hand of God himself. A lot of this is going to make sense when later we read about prophecy that the Lord will take our stony heart out, put one of flesh in us, you see. Now, however, despite their repentance and Moses' successful prayers, they were no longer on that level. Please understand that. Now, listen, this is when it gets really good because Humash says it will be for them to perfect themselves with constant effort to lift themselves back to where they had been. That's why in the second tablets, Moses carved them out. That was a prophetic picture of what the nation will have to do in the future. It's not God doing it all. See, we got this mentality that God does it all. We pray, God does it, and that's it. We sit back and we wait. This is an antithesis to Judaism. You have to get up and make it happen, and God will help you. Moses carving out the second tablets was symbolic of the nation now purifying themselves. In other words, we have to make this work now because this is our way back. How do we make our way back? Purifying yourself. They have to be constant in effort to lift themselves back to where they have been. A task that will be completed when we merit, listen to the, 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 the language, when we merit the coming of the Messiah. How many of you want the Messiah to come back? You have to merit it. Well, we didn't learn that in Sunday school, did we? We didn't learn that anywhere, that you have to merit the coming of the Messiah. Which means that instead of looking for doomsday, let's start working in our character. You know, the world is just as ugly as it was 4,000, 5,000 years ago in reality. It's just as ugly. The only difference is that we have more people now and we have Internet. It's the only difference. world travels pretty fast. Click a button, bad news reached. That's all. So in the, in the eyes of the beholder, it looks like, oh, my God, this world is really getting bad. It's not getting worse, folks. It's just our information is coming to us. Like this. See? So it's not about how bad the world gets. God is not interested in how bad the world gets. God wants you to purify the world. Do you understand this? This is so important, family. Because you are in a faith called Judaism. You're no longer in a faith called whatever is it that you guys were involved with before. You fill in the blanks. You got grafted into a faith that is called Judaism. Judaism. So you need to conform to the understanding of Judaism, not the system of religion that you came out of. If that's the case, why are you here? Ask yourself that question, what am I doing here? If Judaism is completely different than what you know, guess what? It's supposed to be. If it's the same, again, why are you here? It's time to change, folks. All those doomsday story, put them away. Start purifying the world. Pick up a midot today. Pick up a mass say today. Let's start doing deeds that are befitting of repentance. What is the first order business that we have to do? Folks, hear me out, because in here, this is the way back. Between Exodus 24 and Exodus 34, something amazing happened. A oh, golden calf. First thing is, we need to get rid of idolatry. I don't care how many deeds you do. If idolatry is in your midst, it means gloom in Hebrew, nothing. Might be good for you now, you know, for the people that are receiving your blessing. But the first order of business is God says you need to remove idolatry because this is the one thing that the God of Israel does not tolerate, idolatry. How many of you in here know why Israel got scattered? Was it because they didn't do the rituals the right way? Is it because they didn't do the prayers the right way? No? Was it because they brought a pig to the altar instead of a sheep? Nope. What was it? Read your Tanakh. It says it. There was no justice. They were not taking care of the poor. They were not taking care of the widow. And they had idolatry in their midst. That is completely the whole of everything, folks. I will submit to you that if you can comprehend that, even if you don't got the rituals the right way, you will find favor before the Almighty, and you will be counted worthy. You understand? But idolatry must be removed, period. At all costs, by the way, folks, at all cost. Therefore, Moses was commanded to fashion the new tablets. This is what we're doing you need to fashion the tablets you need to get up you need to work your salvation with fear and trembling right stop waiting for god to carve out the tablets by the way the luchot in hebrew which is known as the tablets is also in the tanakh really is very clear about this it is also a metaphor for your heart That's why he talks a lot about the tablets of your heart. So stop saying, I'm just waiting for God to change my heart. How many times do we hear that? I'm waiting for God to change my heart. And God is saying, I'm waiting for you to move. This is the mentality that needs to die, family. You are in a fate now called Judaism. If you're not quite sure what fate you got grafted into, Come and see me. i will be more than happy to explain it in detail what you got grafted into. But you cannot custom tailor your religion. That season is over. No more custom making my own religion according to the way I see fit. This is not the line in Burger King, have it your way. Design a burger exactly how you want it. It may work for Burger King. I promise you it's not going to work for Hashem. You don't get to dictate how this religion is operated. Do we understand that? We have to be in agreement with that. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered all over the face of the earth like Israel was. It has to be in orderly fashion. Does the Tanakh support Israel perfecting themselves? You know, usually that's, the, that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road. It's like, okay, well, now you're trying to earn your salvation, right? It gives that aroma. You're trying to earn your salvation. If so, how? Well, the first time, believe it or not, that we read the Tanakh. Notice that I'm saying read because it's something that you can go and read it. About Israel perfecting himself, it's actually in Genesis 35. First time we ever read about it. Let's go to Genesis 35 too, and look what it says. So Jacob said to his household... And to all who were with him, put away, what? The foreign gods, which are among you, and what? Purify yourselves, and change your garments. Do you notice what's happening there? There's three things that's taking place. The first thing he says, put away the foreign gods. This is the order, folks. This is the order right here. To come back. Cut the tablets now. Meaning the the old ones are shattered. Now you have to cut. You have to work in circumcising your heart. God is not going to circumcise your heart. You need to circumcise your heart. That's why, again, the teaching is Moses carving out the second tablets. It's equated to you circumcising your heart. See? We have to remove the foreign gods from among us. Purify ourselves and change our garment. You know that there's always change involved. That word change is always there. If you're expecting to switch religion and not change, I, I have to say you're not being honest with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself. How can you expect to change faith but not change anything else that comes along with the faith? It's not very, very honest. Let's go to Isaiah 52.11. It says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourself again. You who carry the vessels of the Lord. Well, you may not be a priest carrying the physical vessels of the Lord, but you carry the Shekhinah of Hashem, which is very, very, very similar to carrying the vessels of the Lord. The Shekhinah means His presence. If you're carrying the, are you carrying the presence of the Lord? Is that a, a safe question to ask around here? Do you carry? Do you carry? Okay. I won't ask nobody else. But this is the idea. We have to carry the vessels of the Lord. And that means that we need to remove idolatry from me. Isaiah forty-four twenty-two says, I have wiped out your transgressions. Who's doing the wiping out? Who's speaking in Isaiah 44:22? 22? Hashem himself. Hashem is saying, I am wiping out your transgressions. Like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. What is our duty? Shuvah, return to me, for I have what? Redeem you. It is a constant purifying yourself and return to me, he says. Over and over and over throughout his word. Look what Jeremiah 4.1 says. If you will return, all Israel, declares the Lord Hashem, then you should return to me, he says. And if you will put away your detested things from my presence, he says, and will not waver. God is saying, remove the foreign idols from your life already. Stop wavering. Have zeal and chop it off like Hezekiah did when he became king. He destroyed all the idols of the nation. didn't held back. Destroy everything that is not in accordance to my holy word. If you are willing to do this, God says, guess what? Your transgressions are gone. The rabbis say... That if Israel only one day was to repent, he will restore Israel tomorrow. That's how quick. This is what he wants. Our repentance and our deeds that are befitting repentance. And not to waver. What is wavering? Well, we like to get, you know, we got a bad habit. So here's a golden calf, right? I'm going to picture it. We like to get rid of it in chisels, here, 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 here. And sometimes we like to keep little pieces here and there, you know, for memory. Because we do that, and unfortunately we do that in real life. We're, we're trained to, well, don't just get rid of everything, right? God is saying if it's not good, there cannot be possibly an inch in that golden calf that is actually good for you. Get rid of everything, all of it. Because if we keep remnants of it, guess what? You're going to build another one. Or, better yet, you're going to revive it again. We have to get rid of it. That's where the no-wavering comes in, by the way. And you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Then the nations will bless themselves in him, it says, and in him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. Be careful what you're sowing in your life. And now here's the one that's really interesting that gives us the explanation to what we just read. Verse 4 says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Who's doing the circumcising? We are. Circumcise yourself to the Lord, and look what it says, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Luchot in Hebrew, the tablets that Moses himself is now carving out. You see? There's the connection. The first time, God did it all. It was perfect. The second time, they fell into idolatry. Now they say, God says, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to do the work to come back to me now. Stop depending on me giving you your pacifier. It's time for you to grow up and now and come back and return to me. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds looks what he says this is a recurring problem with the nation of israel folks why do you think the father allowed the nation of israel to prosper the way it did and for us to have the blessing to be able to read about it today so that we may not commit the same same sins that they committed through their ages we have to be able to do this folks So how do we return and circumcise our heart? That's a good one. A lot of words have been spoken in here based on two questions so far. The reality is the only answer is genuine repentance. That's it. Genuine repentance is how we return back to the Lord God of Israel. He's not interested in anything else. Look, how many of you consider Jeremiah a credible prophet? How many of you consider Isaiah a credible prophet? Okay. Will you believe Isaiah or will you believe the modern day prophets? If I were to tell you right now today, which one will you lie on? Which one will you believe? Hopefully, you will say Isaiah. Because he's approved by God. We know that for a fact. We don't know the new prophet is coming. We don't know whether he's approved of God or not. Do you know that God sent prophets through the Tanakh so that we can shemore, so that we can hear? Listen to the prophets of Israel because they have lots of words of wisdom, folks. And they have lots of warnings for his people in the future. Do not be mislaid, do not be dismayed, do not be confused, do not walk around confused. Why are we walking confused? If we have God's word, if we have his real prophets that are validated through the scriptures, why are we walking confused? Look what Jeremiah says, and this is a heed. So said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Jeremiah speaking now on behalf of... Oh, the Lord God of Israel, pay attention. All your ears should be now wide open. Hazan. Improve your ways and your deeds, he says. I will allow you to dwell in this place. How does Hashem allows us, what is he talking about? Well, they're in Jerusalem, and Jeremiah's here near the temple area. How is it that Hashem is going to allow us to dwell in this place, the land of Israel? The final promise, the goal of every believer. How? He's given us the answer, family. We have to take the glasses off that are full of fog and put clean glasses so that you can see the word of God. He says, improve your ways and your deeds, and I will allow you to dwell in this place. Do not rely, listen to the word, this is a warning. Do not rely on false words. What was Jeremiah thinking of that day? when he said this? You don't have to guess it, family. This is the beauty. You don't have to fill in. It tells us in the text what he's thinking. What's in his mind when he spoke this proverb here? Do not rely on false words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, are they. Now there's a drash concerning those three times, but we're not going to get into that now. And look what it says. For if you improve your ways, number one, and your deeds, two, if you perform judgment between one man and his fellow man, three, if you do not oppress the stranger, four, and the orphan, five, or a widow, six, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place, seven, and if you do not follow other gods, there it is. Where am I? Seven? Eight. There it is. Here's the list. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, is giving us the list. You want to come back? You want to dwell in this place? Here's the list for you. Here's the list. Write down that list, family. There it is. Because guess what? Jeremiah spoke it on behalf of the Lord God of Israel. So on that day of judgment, you can tell Hashem, I'm opening Jeremiah, Hashem. Bam. Here it is. He spoke it, and according to him, you said it. You got something to stand on, believe it or not. You have a lot of leg to stand on. All this that we read, verse 5, all of it, folks. Notice in there. That Jeremiah doesn't say anything about how many times you wash your hands a day. How many times do you make week? How perfect is the sacrifice you're bringing? Heck, he, said, he, said, he hasn't even mentioned sacrifice in here. Have you noticed that? Or am I the one who's going crazy here? Not an ounce of blood in here. Not, a, not an animal mentioned in here. But what is mentioned in here? Your heart, your deeds. This is the weight of matter. This is the foundation, folks, for the Torah. If you don't have this, it, it is irrelevant how perfect your sacrifice is. Listen, God doesn't care how perfect your sacrifice is. How much blood, you know, you might bring, you know, 50 gallons worth of blood to God. He says, I don't care about how many gallons of blood you bring into me, I want you. I want your repentance. I want you to get rid of all these false gods, and I want you to learn to get along with your neighbor. Do justice to one another. Do you honestly believe, folks? Seriously, just, you know. from from One brother to another. Do you honestly believe that God is going to accept blood sacrifices even though you are completely... And opposite of all this, I can show you where in the Bible he didn't. Seven, I will allow you, he says, to dwell in this place, he says. If all the other lists of things that are there, by the way, what Jeremiah said in here, it's not just contained in a vacuum. I can show you all the prophets who are uttering the exact same words. So you can't say, well, Richard, you're only using one or two verses. If you want, we can spend here all night, and I'll continue going on and on. Of all the prophets that spoke the exact same words, completely. I will allow you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your forefathers, it says, from days of your to eternity. This is the key. Continue with Jeremiah now, 721. Look what he says. So says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Here we go again. The God of Israel speaks: At your burnt offerings upon your sacrifices and eat flesh. Meaning the meat is good to eat. For neither did I speak with your forefathers, nor did I command them on the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. He said, the forefathers, I never demanded this from them. But the thing that I did command them, notice what he's saying? Why does he mention the forefathers, folks? Because the forefathers is the foundation of our faith. He's letting know the reader in here or the the audience is standing before in here to say, remember. You ever heard of people saying to you, remember where you came from? Same concept here. Remember where you came from, the forefathers, what is it that I demanded of them that has not changed today? And you're going to find it there. But this is the thing that I commanded them saying. Obey me so that I am your God. Here we go. What is the word? Obey me so that I am your God and you are my people. And you walk in all the ways that I command you so that it will be what? Well with you you getting this, family. Obey me. Do justice. Practice sadaka, charity. Extend equity. But most importantly, get rid of your golden calf. That's the number one in the list. Get rid of the golden calf. Look, let's go to Samuel. We see another example here in Samuel. First Samuel fifteen twenty-two to twenty-three. What does it say? Samuel said to who? To Saul, the king of Israel. Do you guys consider Samuel one that we can trust? Okay. So this is what Samuel says: Has the Lord ha- as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Do you hear the question? He is saying, does the Lord have more pleasure on burnt offerings and sacrifice as opposed to obedience? Behold, look what he says, to obey. If you learn anything today, learn this one. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heat than the fat of rams. Why? You know, you got to get a little bit of context in this. Why is Samuel saying this to Saul? Read your Bibles, folks. Get familiar with your Bibles. Go back. Read. Read. Why is Samuel saying this to the king of Israel? Because the king of Israel has a habit and disobeying the commandments of Samuel. Samuel is telling him, do this, and the king of Israel is doing the very opposite. And every time things go wrong, Saul grabs Samuel and tells him, let's make a sacrifice so that I can be restored before God. This is the beginning of the end, by the way. Seriously, because it starts with Saul, and then later we see that this same attitude kind of trickled down with the nation. Instead of following with God, well, we don't have to really technically follow God to the letter of the law. We don't have to because we can just bring a sacrifice. If we bring a sacrifice, then we're good. That means, by extension, we can basically do whatever we want. And then we'll bring a sacrifice at the end of the day, and we restore by, you know, by the Almighty. What does that give you? What is the, uh, what is the attitude there, folks? What happens there? It gives you a false sense of security. See, now you're depending on blood sacrifices. You're never going to change. You know why you're never going to change? Because subconsciously, you already know that the sacrifice is going to cover your sins. You follow me? So if the sacrifices are going to cover your sin, then what is the incentive in keeping God's law? Many of you come out of a system of religion that endorses that, which is why they say we don't have to keep the law. And here I am to profess it today. It is true. Why are we keeping the law? They are absolutely right. They're not crazy. You are. They know what they're doing. If we have a sacrifice and all we depend is on sacrifices, then the reality is we have no use for God's law. Maybe every now and then for a little bit of wisdom, right? We go back to the Psalms and we learn all the Proverbs. We learn a little bit of wisdom. But other than that, we really don't have to. This is what it gives birth to. This is what Saul was doing. See, Saul was doing the same thing. Samuel, do, say, Saul said, nope, sorry, but let's, let's go sacrifice together, Samuel. Because Samuel, remember, Samuel's a priest. He's a Kohen. So Saul had it made. I have a Kohen on my right hand who can take care of all my problems. I can go and do whatever I want, and I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and rope this Kohen with me. I'm going to drag him with me. Wherever we go, he will make a sacrifice on my behalf and end the, the story. Here's the rebuke. He says, don't do that. Let's continue. Look what it says in 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Anybody know what divination is? Witchcraft. So when you willfully are rebelling against God, understand that you're borderline in idolatry, not just in idolatry, but it's what? Divination. And insubordination is an iniquity and what? Idolatry. See? Whew. But we have the sacrifice, right? We're good. Because we have the sacrifice. Thank God for those sheeps and goats. Right? Because, look at what it says. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you for being king. Saul missed the opportunity of being a great king on Israel. Completely missed it. Because of his reliance in blood sacrifices as opposed to doing obedience to the creator. That's the reality of the story, folks. It's black and white. Why we read this in Sukkot? We read this this portion in Sukkot because that's what the Father is trying to teach us. Sukkot is a season where prophetically, in the future, we will dwell with our Heavenly Father in Jerusalem. We will dwell with the people of Israel. We will have the Messiah, Son of David, with us. But in order to get there, folks, remember we have to get there. This is the tie of the teaching today. In order to get there, we have to teshuva. We have to circumcise our heart. And we have to do the deeds that are befitting of that of repentance. If we don't do that, folks, and we continue holding on to sacrifices, we're essentially shaming our Heavenly Father. We're defiling His covenant. And this is not something that He's going to be pleased with. So on this Sukkot, while we're sitting in these tents, remember, the tents represent only a temporary stay in this world. It represents the state when Israel left Egypt and dwelt in tents for 40 years. The tents are meant to purge you from all the commodities that life presents to you. That's why many of you are walking very cranky this whole week because you don't have the comforts of your home, right? And things are just different. The walls, we can hear everything. It's just not as comfortable as a permanent home. It's not designed that way. God is teaching us in this lesson that this life is but temporary. And that we remember that as you dwell in those tents, that once upon a time, there was a nation that did this for 40 years as they were transitioning from Egypt to the promised land. That transition in the middle, folks, is where all the work takes place. This is why we always encourage in here for you to celebrate Sukkot with one another. You know, it will be so much easier to just do Sukkot by myself in my backyard. But the idea is that we miss the point when we do that. And in reality, we do a great disservice to one another, and we're not true to one another. So I pray that in this Sukkot, what is left of it, that we will muster that within us to dwell in that tent and then just go to sleep. Take some time and look around you. Meditate on his word. Look at the things that, because, you know, Sukkot brings a lot of uglies in us. This is when we write it down. Man, I was really, uh, I did to this person this. This is where we journal. You know, my wife last night talked about Musar and journaling. This is, where you, this is the season where you need to be journaling. Journal when you're in Sukkot. And then look back and say, ooh, I could have done better. I could have done better here, 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 here. Make those changes. This is the sacrifice that God is looking for a contrite heart and a broken spirit. That, O Hashem, you would not refuse. And that is our message for today. Amen? May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you, guys. All right, we're going to go ahead now and let us stand for our corporate reading. We're going to be doing today reading out of Ezekiel. And Brother Mark is going to lead us in this teaching for this e- afternoon. The blessing for thee the Whoops. Want to do the half Haftorah blessing here? Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who has selected good prophets and was pleased with their words which were spoken truthfully. Blessed are you, Hashem our God, who chooses the Torah, your servant Moses, your people Israel, and the prophets of truth and righteousness. And today we're going to be reading out of Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 1 through 8. Do we have a reader?
1: Make sure I'm in the right portion. And you, son of man, prophesy against Og, excuse me, against Gog, and you shall say, Thus said the master Hashem, See, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and shall turn you around and lead you on, and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel, and shall strike the bow out of your left hand, and make the arrows fall from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you shall fall, you and all your bands, and the peoples who are with you. To the birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field I shall give you for food. On the face of the field you shall fall, for I have spoken, declares the Master Hashem. And I shall send fire upon Magog, and on those who live undisturbed in the coastlands. And they shall know that I am Hashem, and I shall make my set-apart name, known in the midst of my people israel and not let my holy name be profaned any anymore and the nations shall know that i am hashem the holy one in israel see it shall come and it shall be done declares the master hashem this is the day of which i have spoken
0: and we all say amen his name be praised for all eternity the blessing after the reading for the haftorah Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, rock of all eternities, faithful in all generations, the trustworthy God who says and does, who speaks and makes it come to pass, all whose words are truth and righteous. Faithful are you, Hashem, our God, and faithful are your words, for not one word of yours has turned back unfulfilled, for you are the faithful and compassionate Thank God and, God and King. King. Blessed are you, O Hashem, the God who is faithful in all his words. Amen. You may be seated.
2: Shalom, shalom. Shalom. Always interesting how the half Torah uh, theme will carry on with the from the Torah portion theme, and we're going to see that uh, with the idea of purification and carrying forward, uh, adding maybe some new wrinkles to it. But you you heard the verses that Wade read, and you recognize a few names there, perhaps. Gog, Magog, yeah. So we have a war going on. We got any um, uh, any military folks? Oh, we're missing a few. Yeah, there are a few here and uh, a few are stepped out of the room. So it's all about the War of Gog and Magog. This is a special reading for the, well, let's pack it up. Please. It's the Shabbat Chol Homoled Sukkot. It's the Shabbat that comes in the middle of Sukkot, the middle of the feast. And so this is read on, on that particular Shabbat, so that's, that's the one for today. And it's about the War of Gog and Magog. And it has something to do with Sukkot. What does Sukkot have to do with the War of Gog and Magog, right? So we're going to see the connection. So, you know, in in so chance to sit in the sukkah. We have a lovely suka out here with goat hair. Um, in our 10 acres and in, in our spot here in Arizona, there's lots of elbow room. So you got lots of place to put a suka. you know. In, in a city, you might not have that kind of space. And I, w- I had a, I saw an email from one of those things I subscribed to. They said, yeah, if you run out of options for a place to put your suka, don't worry. Try uh try your truck bed, suka. Just saying there's options. If you don't got a truck bed, try your boat. No and if you don't got a truck bed, you don't got a boat, just use your camel if you run out of options. So you can put a sukkah anywhere, right? no excuses, right? You live in a city and you're in a third floor apartment, no excuses. We'll find your way. We'll find a way. So there's a connection between the Magog and Sukkot. What is that connection? Well, let's jump into the uh, Gog and Magog idea. It's actually Gog, not so much Gog. It's Gog and Magog. So 39 uh, verse 1 says, uh, talks about the war. It says the same war in Zechariah. So they both describe the war. Some of them have more information about certain things and less information about others, uh, but they complement each other very nicely. It says, prophesy against Gog of Magog and say thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. But that's not exactly right. Because that word Rosh there is, uh, means a head or a chief. So often some English translations will say it like that. Like there's three places. Like there's a place of Rosh, there's a place of Meshech, and a place of Tubal. No, no, really it really should be the head, the head prince, the chief prince of Meshech and of Tubal. And so the idea there would be that, um, oh, that's interesting. Meshech and Tubal are actually the names of Japheth's sons, right? And that's so there's, you, they spread out into the world, and, and these nations came from them. Um, so Ga- Go, <coughs> Gog reigned over the lands of Magog and Meshech and Tubal, and th- we talked before about the Suzerain Castle Treaty. This would be the same kind of idea, right? They're paying homage. They're, they're subservient to Gog, all right? So Here's a little map. I always wondered where it is. Traditionally, scholars say Magog is coming up here from the north and coming down towards Israel, whereas Meshech and Tubal are in like that Turkey, Syria kind of area. You can see over there, there's Libya, uh, Persia, Gomers coming over here from it looks like Eastern Europe as well. Interesting, interesting to kind of um, ponder where, where these, these names are coming from, right? So that's what we see there. But when does this war happen? Our verses tell us. They tell us. So 39 verse 8 says surely it's coming and it shall be done says the Lord that this is the day of which I have spoken. Verse 17 thus says the Lord God of whom he are you he of whom I have spoken in the former days by my servants the prophets of Israel who prophesied in those days that I would bring you against them. All right and one more. Okay, so here the prophetic war uh, happens. Quote in that day, it's the end of days, right? With the end of time. Those those Hebrew words behind um, the day refer to the last days. If you were so, you get the, we, in English we call it latter days. We can call it the end of times. Um, so why does Gog come against Israel? Right? Well, he he thought he could uh, prevail. He thought it's time to take care of this problem over here, and we're going to take care of. We're going to go go against them. But something else is happening, and Ezekiel tells us directly what is happening. In 38, verse 4, he says, I will turn you around, talking to Gog. Wait a second. We're already on a different track. Gog's thinking, I'm going to go do this thing. God said, no, it's, it's me doing that. Right? I'm going to turn you around, hooks in your jaw, and lead you out. You, and almost like that fishing example where you get that hook, and he's just, he just pulling pulling him out, and they don't even know it. He thinks he's, he's going with pride. He's going with arrogance. I'm going to go take care of this Jewish problem. But God's the one bringing him. Interesting. All your armies and horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company of bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. That's a great army coming. And he's, and he's bringing his, his subservient nations with him, the ones that are uh, paying homage to him. They're all, you know, you're forced to. You're coming with. And so Ezekiel thirty-eight seventeen says that the Lord God says, Are you he of whom I have spoken in the former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for in the years the days that I would bring you against them, echoing that same thought. And in verses 10 and 12 of 38, thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that the thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up to the land of the unwalled villages. I will go to the peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, no bars, no gates. And I will take plunder and stretch out my hand against the people who have gathered from the nations and have acquired goods who dwell in the midst of the land. So you see Gog is coming with arrogance. He's coming with this prideful, pridefulness, but it's God who's pulling him. God's the one uh, bringing him against Israel because of, because of Israel's need um, for, this, for this purification, for this purification, for this, um, this evil to come upon them because of their deeds. All right, verse 9, uh, 39, verse 2, I meant. It says, I will turn you around and lead you on and bring you up from the far north. So you see this passage in Ezekiel is verse after verse after verse. We're jumping around a little bit, but you just that theme is right there, present. You can't get away from it. If you missed one, it's going to show up in the next verse and show up in the next verse. I will bring you against the nations of Israel. It's Hashem who's causing this to happen, right? But God thinks he's going to make it happen. Dun-dun-dun. He's going to go take care of business. Interesting. So what's the result? Well, we read that too in our portion. Ezekiel 30, uh, verse 18. It'll come to pass in the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show my face for my jealousy. In the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there will be a great earthquake. In the land of Israel, now, um, the part in Zechariah mentions the earthquake, but here we get a fuller description of this thing. Um, The fish, the birds, the beast, all the men, we're going to shake at God's presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places are fall. Every wall is going to fall to the ground. We're all going to feel it. The entire world is going to feel this earthquake. And uh, it goes on, I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain and great hailstones and fire and brimstone. Can you imagine? It's hard to imagine without, you know, experiencing that ourselves. That judgment that's coming on, on Gog because he's coming against Israel. They're, they're really being allowed allowed to pursue their passions, right? They're allowed to have that passion to want to come against Israel, and he's God's bringing them forward so he can... Um, squash him. It's going to be amazing. So ultimately Gog is destroyed at the hand of Hashem. Can I get an amen? Yeah, Wait. Wake, wake, wake up, people. He's going to keep destroying at the hand of Hashem at the end of days. It's an amazing prophetic judgment, uh, judgment that's going to happen and an amazing prophecy of blessing for Israel, right? Okay, so what was God's purpose? Why? Why are we doing this? Well, Ezekiel 38, 23. I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be shown in the eyes of many nations, and they will know that I am Hashem. Now, we spoke of that word know being yadah. Remember, we talked about yadah being, a, a, it's the physical, it's the, I, I, like, when you see the wrath of God coming upon you in hail and thunder, like, okay, now you've experienced it. Like, now you know the wrath of God, the fear of God. Uh, the nations are going to know that He is Hashem, because only He could bring that about. Ezekiel 39, 6 and 7. Then they shall know that I am Hashem. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations, they shall know that I am Hashem, the Holy One in Israel right? There's a, there is a, a setting apart of, of God's name, right? A purification of God's name has been taken in vain. Now it's going to be set apart and they're going to be able to give honor and that's due to the creator of the universe through the uh, natural things that in nature came upon them the hailstones uh, and the fire and the thunder. But who controls nature, right? Hashem's in control and he's going to show his name to be great whether you believe it or not. And all every knee will bow. Right, this is where we get those verses. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Amen. Oh, man. Uh, verse thirty-eight to verse sixteen. I said of chapter thirty-eight, it says, "This will be in the Achrit, Hahamim, the end of days, and I will bring you against my land, so that the nations will know me when before my eye, before their eyes, I am set apart through you, Gog, set apart through So he's using Gog to then. Purify his name. Purify his people. And so the nations are going to now know they're going to die and experience him. They will know it, right? They will be shown as a holy. Uh, Hashem's name will be shown as holy. And he's going to use Gog to do that, right? Gog's coming in arrogance against Israel, and he's going to be smashed in, in the earthquakes and the thunder and the pestilence. You're not going to have any doubt who God is. Those that denied that there was even a God, well, that's it's just, it's just Mother Nature. No, you're going to know now. At this point in the end of days, it's all coming true. You're, the knowledge is going to be out there. Every, all the nations are going to know. They're going to know it. All right. So we have this comparison. We still have an answer to the question. We're talking about the War of Gog and Magog, and we're talking about Sukkot, and this is a prescribed reading for Sukkot. Er? Why? Why? How would that be? Well, the sages, they put a lot of thought into this, and they have, uh, they've got some answers for us. How about Rashi? He says the prophecy foretells that these nations um, who survived the wars, they're then going to have to join Israel every year in celebrating Sukkot in, in Israel, coming for the Sukkot festival. They're going to be required. Remember the verses that talk about no rain come upon your land if you don't come to Sukkot. So they'll try to not to, and they'll find out the hard way one, one more time, right? So there's a connection with Sukkot there. Um, the nations will be required. Mid, the Midrash Tan Kumah 4 connects the plagues of verse 22 um, of, our, uh, of Ezekiel here to something else. So before we do that, let's take a look at uh, that verse again. We already saw it once, but I've underlined a few things. I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed and rain down on him and his troops and the many peoples who are with him in flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Are you seeing a connection to anything else? Any other major story in our scriptures? Get that out of there the midrash connects the plagues of verse 22 to the punishments that god brought upon the egyptians right and the sages compare pharaoh's intention with gog's intention so there's a connection on the beginning of time beginning beginning of the nation of israel and here at the end in israel's infancy pharaoh attempted to cripple the nation at the end of time gog in one last gigantic effort tries to destroy what seems like a vulnerable nation he found out the hard way It goes on, God responds to both, both Gog and both Pharaoh uh, by unleashing the forces of nature against them, proving that all the power is in his hands. He is in control. Amen? Amen. So after the plagues, Pharaoh, uh, you know, they all dwelt in booths, right? They went through the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness and they dwelt in booths for 40 40 years. So there's a connection with Sukkot there yet again. Oh, Hirsch. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Hirsch uh, does a great explanation or expounding on, on uh, the connection here. He points out that the word gog is, is formed with a gimel and a vav and a gimel. So the vav form, you know, gets that O sound uh, at times. So it's being used here for uh, gimel, vav, gimel meaning gog. That's why we say it's gog. But that immediately, immediately reminds somebody of this other word. When you know Hebrew, you're like, well, gimel, vav, gimel reminds us of just gimel, gimel. Gimel, gimel means, not, not mountain or prince of Meshek like gog means, but gimel, gimel means a roof or a top, the housetop, right? It's a solid roof, which immediately reminds Hirsch of say, hey, there's a difference between a roof and a sukkah, right? The sukkah is this temporary and the roof is more permanent, right? We see that right here. weak and temporary versus strong and permanent and Hirsch goes immediately to the personal application. Which one are you gonna be? Are you gonna be the roof, the solid foundation roof or are you gonna be a sukkah, temporary? Right. So, what does it mean to be a roof? Spending your life making yourself safe against earthly enemies and deluding yourselves that you're safe from from above. Right. Gog, taking it back to Gog, he was a roof. Right. He was arrogant. He thought he had all the power in his hand. He had. He was king of kings. Right. He had other nations bowing down before him, and he was, could tell them, "We're going to go to war, and you're going to go with us, and you're going to go. You know, you're going to. You know." give me homage and you're gonna go do my bidding. So he thought he was, a, he was safe from above and he was gonna go against God's country, God's nation, God's people. Being a roof means you're, you're putting yourself as independent of the creator of the universe. You're setting yourself apart in a bad way. What does it mean to be a sukkah? Spending our lives recognizing our temporary status as sojourners in this world. We're passing through, right, on the way to the Habad. So therefore, we're putting our trust and faith in Hashem, right? So what happens is connection with Gog is, is even stronger because that's about talking about a war. Our lives are a war, right? We're constantly at this war between suf, suka, sukkah, roof. Am I a roof today or a sukkah today? Or oh, I'm, I'm going to be a sukkah. And all of a sudden, you turn into a roof, Right? Because you can switch pretty quickly in that emotional status of, I, I, I can do it myself, or, or if you have success, and look, God blesses you, and you're like, wow, look at the blessings I have. Look, look what I did. I went from a sukkah to a roof in nothing flat. Hmm. What are you striving for? Are we striving to have this connection with the Creator who says, you are just a sojourner in this world. Do not get distracted by the things of this world. Your foundation is not here in this world. Your foundation is in the things of me. Uh, be a sukkah. May you continually seek your creator, recognizing your temporary status as a, as a, as a sukkah, right? Let that, let that battle um, not, not lead towards the roof, right? But the sages have more to say about what does it mean to be a sukkah? Why do we actually sit in the sukkah? The sages have seven reasons for sukkah sitting. Seven reasons to sit in the sukkah. That's beautiful. I love that space. All right, so seven reasons for sitting in a sukkah. One, thanksgiving for the harvest. And they draw this from Exodus 23:16, the Feast of the gathering, when you dwell, uh, gather in the results of your field and match that up with Deuteronomy 16. After the Ingathering, from your threshing floor and your vat, you shall hold the Feast of Booths for seven days, and you shall hold a festival, in the place that Hashem will choose for Hashem your God will bless all your crops and all your undertakings, and you shall have nothing but joy. So we sit in the sukkah in order to be giving thanks for the blessings. Right? It's a place for thanksgiving, the sitting in a sukkah. That's reason number one for sitting, sukkah sitting. What's number two? Histori- there's a historical link to our ancestors. right? As we join in with Israel, the Israel uh, historical Israel and Hashem himself, there's a connection. We see it in Leviticus 23. You're going to live in booths for seven days. All citizens in Israel should live in booths. Why? In order that the future generations, that'd be us, right, may know that I made the Israelite the Israelite people to live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So when we're sitting in the sukkah, we're hearkening back to the original sukkah sitters as they came out of Egypt, right? And we're also connecting to our, the creator of the universe as well who gave that instruction to do that. All right. We sit in the sukkah in order to retain that link uh, to our ancestors. Number three, remembering the battle days. You know that phrase, the good old days? is The not, not so good old days. What do they mean by that? Philo talks about it's well, it is well in wealth to remember your poverty. It's In distinction, you want to remember your insignificance. In high office, remember your position as a commoner. When you're in peace, remember your dangers in war. When you're on land, remember the storms that were at sea. When you're in a community, remember that life of loneliness before you had that community, right? It's the idea of remembering when things weren't so well and now all has blessed you. It's about remembering, remembering. How many times during Sukkot, he says, remember, remember, remember. All the feasts, Passover, remember, 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 remember. Remembering the, the, the way things were when they weren't so well and he, how he brought you out of that. Remember how he brought you forward, right? Don't forget the places we've come from because it's a lesson in a humbleness of where we're gonna be. So there's no greater pleasure, he says, than in high prosperity, than to call to mind the old misfortunes. But besides giving pleasure, it's a considerable help in a practice of virtue for people who have had both good and ill before them and have rejected the ill are now enjoying the good. Necessarily, They necessarily fall into a grateful frame of mind and are urged to piety by fear of change to the reverse. Like, it could go back. By remembering the, the way we came from, we recognize that, yeah, it wouldn't take much to get back to there, right? Like we talked about how I'm having a sukkah mindset and I switch completely to a roof mindset and didn't even know I did it, right? We don't want that reverse to happen when we're we'll mindful of our sukkah mindset. Therefore, in thankfulness for your present blessing, sitting in a sukkah will you will honor Hashem with songs and words of praise and beseech Him and appropriate Him with supplications that they may never repeat the experience of such evils. So sitting in a sukkah reminds us of how far you've come. Right, and lead you to praise and thanksgiving for God for all the kindness he has bestowed upon us. All right. There's a lesson in humility in the Sukkot. That theme's been running throughout uh, our talk today. Rashbam says, this is why God designed the Sukkot at the harvest season, so that a person's heart would not grow haughty because of the house is now filled with everything good. Right? You reaped it in the harvest. They say, and you might say, let our own hands, that made all this wealth for us. Right? That was that sukkah mindset and then it switches to that roof mindset. Look what I did when God was, you know, providing you with the blessing. So it's a lesson in humility. Uh, Ramban goes on, or Ramban says, uh, teaches the Jews by sitting in the sukkah to remember his evil days in his day of prosperity. He will thereby be induced to thank God repeatedly and lead to a modest and humble life. So sitting in the sukkah is then meant to induce both a feeling of gratitude and humility. All right? Also, Sukkah sitting increases your faith. Yitzhak Aboab in his book Menorat Hama'or, says the main point of living in a sukkah for seven days is to increase your faith in God. When we live in a sturdy house, we are protected from the elements, protected from rain and the cold and the heat. They can't harm us. As a result, we begin to have faith in our house, not in God, right? That switching from that sukkah mindset over to that roof mindset because you have, you're, you have things taken care of, Right? By living in a flimsy sukkah for seven days, exposed once again to the elements, we realize that ultimately we must put our trust in God, who rules over our houses, uh, rules over the elements, and rules over human rulers. Amen. So sukkah sitting teaches us to trust, put our faith in the creator of the universe, right? All right, universal peace, that's interesting. So Hirsch, in his book Choreb talks about the sukkah and how it symbolizes universal peace and brotherhood as we recite in the evening service on Shabbat and, and during festivals, we say, Eferos Aleinu Sukkot, sukkot Shamoleka," means spread over us your sukkah of peace. Spread over us your sukkah of peace. You'll find this in your seduers. Sitting in a sukkah teaches us to pray for peace, but not for economic peace, not for political peace, but rather a peace that's based on a joint belief in the one true God, the creator of the universe. This is accomplished by sitting in the sukkah as well. And finally, remembering the less fortunate. Seventh one. Precisely at harvest time, we thank God for the bounty he has given us. We must remember to share it with the poor and the hungry. Vote 117 says, "Lo ha-midrash More important than expounding the Torah is observing it. More important than talking about the Torah is doing it. Is doing it. Sitting in the sukkah reminds us to do zadekah, zadekah right? The charity, the giving to others, the find, finding those who are less fortunate than us and helping them on their way, right? This is seven, these are the seven different reasons for sitting in the sukkah because it reminds us that we're not a, a roof. We are to be a sukkah, right? So there's this connection between the war of Magog Gog and Magog. I'm sorry, Gog and Magog. It's so hard to train Train your mind. And, and, and sukkah's hitting. And that has to do with what Richard was talking about, that idea of purification. So the nations were purified by going through that end time war and the ones that were never going to turn their hearts towards, towards God were wiped out. Pestilence, uh, lightning and thunder and storms and earthquakes. And the ones that were left bowed down. Sukkah is a purification by submitting to the creator of and obeying his instructions, we go into the sukkah during Sukkot, and this festival is meant to remind us, yeah, we have a feast. Yes, we have a great time fellowshipping with one another, but we are reminded that we are to have an attitude of sukkah if you will, and a, and, and a heart of humbleness towards God. And so that's your half-tour lesson today.
0: <clears throat> wow, brother, that was a powerful teaching. Y'all agree, that was a powerful teaching. Very, very good, man. I need a copy of that teaching. That's really, really good. I like it. So I, I let's decide to become a sukkah instead. Ba'u Hashem. Our temporary stay in this world. Hallelujah. All right, family, that's what we got for you for today. Let us stand so we can uh, end with the Anak Blessing. And I hope you had a blessed day today. We're still in sukkot. So let's continue rejoicing for the rest of the day and fellowshipping. And um, well, we have a lot to talk about. We're talking about sukkahs. We're talking about Shabbat, the teachings. I mean, there's just so much in here. Um, basically, what I'm trying to say is let's not talk so much about permanent roofs. and Let's talk more about sukkah roofs. That's the idea, folks. I think we need to start uh, deprogramming our way of thinking, start thinking more, again, uh, temporary as opposed to permanent so hashem said to moses when you have to bless my beloved people of israel you have to bless him with the imparting of my name upon each and one of them he said when you have to bless israel you have to bless them in this fashion
3: Na velecha Bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And may the name of the Lord be upon you forever. Amen.
0: All right. Amen and amen. Shabbat all folks. We'll see each other. Well, we're still going to be here. We'll be gathering again on Monday. But we, you know, because Monday is the 8th uh, the day. <laughs>